The best thing since sliced bread, and by that I mean James Bond bungee jumping off a dam. In honor of Lone Survivor, what was the wildest stunt from a 2013 movie? I'm Katie Rich, and I'm going with the axe fight in Bullet in the Head, which is a movie that's basically worthless except for Jason Momoa wielding an axe. Hey, it's me, David the Seven. His question makes me wish I'd seen Fast and Furious 6. So outside of that, as far as stunts I know really happened, that poor stunt woman crashing through the house and the conjuring in Lily Taylor's place probably hurt herself. I'm Matt Patches, and uh, Dave, you don't need to see Furious 6. You can pass on that. Uh, I'm going to go with Tiger Chen's first observed fight in Man of Tai Chi when he fights this golem dude, um, and that's before he owes Keanu Reeves a life. I'm David Ehrlich, and I'm going to go with the most recklessly irresponsible, uh, amazing stunt in an otherwise unwatchable movie, which is obviously the POV almost two-minute shot at the end of Getaway, which you should never, ever see, but you can go on YouTube and see the shot in question in its entirety. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine, too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine, then, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, episode 5 for January 7th, 2014. Happy New Year! I hope you enjoyed the top 10s last week. That was really fun for me to actually listen back to. I don't listen back to episodes that often. Anyway, before we start, we want to, again, ask for some iTunes reviews and also thank the people who have done them, which is such a huge help. S. Welsh 20, Area Code 212, and Let's Talk More Vino, which is something I, I hope that's not a message for us that we should just be talking less and drinking more wine on this podcast although if you and guys we want do that, both we'll do it's it good life advice for us all i feel yeah more monologues while everybody else just gets wasted we could turn this into cougar town and just drink red wine all the time it could be fun um anyway thank you to the people who have written reviews so far please continue telling your friends writing reviews bolstering our egos it's a huge help and uh we are starting off the year on a great note for fighting in the war room and you guys can help us make it even better So uh, over my break, I decided to take up some light reading about comic book superheroes uh, like I do. <laughs> what else uh, would I'm, you do on a break? Well, see, the interesting thing is, is I still haven't gotten through S, but what I've learned about S is with its many multiple pages of inserts, you can't really like take it on the subway or on airplanes or really anywhere you're going to get the story out of order because I don't know if that matters yet, which is a whole different discussion for I'm sure a whole different time. But uh, so I'd like to, you know, keep an ebook going at the same time I'm doing a physical book, you know, so I could have like be reading one when I take off. And then also <laughs> the future is now. Hey, exactly. now, now that you can read your Kindle as you take off, it's a whole new world. That's true. That's right. Even though the flight attendants are really sick of hearing that argument and still insist you turning it off. But that's neither here nor wait, there. Either. Wait, really? You're allowed to keep it on now. I'm sorry. This is a distraction. But getting way no. off topic. I here. know. Yeah, well, I mean, the, that's sort of still up to each individual airline because it's still federal regulation that you have to obey all commands given to you by on-flight attendees. So <laughs> you do legally over jump out yes. this airplane. No, <laughs> yeah. get out. Well, it's very important, uh, you know, for your safety, and that the law says you have to obey them. So when they're like, "Turn off your Kindle," you can't be like, "But I read on CNN.com." They do not like that argument. Anyway. <laughs> 
Uh, I was reading Superman, the unauthorized biography by Glenn Weldon, who is one of the hosts of NPR's pop culture happy hour, which is sort of like our spiritual grandfather, I guess. Ooh, I don't know if they'll like being called grandfather. They, Do they listen to us? No, I don't think so, but they're not that much older than us. They're just an older, po- well, are they even an older podcast? I think they're younger. Anyway, well, I mean, it's not, the, they have a girl they, and three dudes and they have a podcast that they're like us. Katie yeah. loves it. I do. They're, I like the they're much, a lot. They're nicer to each other than we are to each other. <laughs> oh, totally. True. So that's that's the that's the bonus you're getting here. Anyway, uh, Glenn Weldon has written this book, Superman: The Unauthorized Biography, and it's a nonfiction book uh, in the sense that it covers the entire history of Superman across American media uh, from its inception by the sh- uh, Siegel and Schuster. Siegel and Schuster is not right. Uh, by the original creators. Isn't that uh, right? Isn't Siegel and Schuster right? Uh, it's definitely Siegel, but now I'm thinking I'm getting Simon Schuster confused. I'll look it up while you keep talking. Yeah, it's yes. Joe Schuster. Yeah. Okay. Jerry Joe Siegel Shoes. and Joe, Joe Schuster. No. Joey Shoes, yeah. Good job, Dave, from reading those names over and over again and thought he'd forget them. Anyway, but uh, it's interesting also in the history because there's a whole period of time where it's under legal dispute still sort of going on today. But you can learn that by reading this book, sort of in the sense that it uh, mentions a lot, basically everything that happens in Superman, both in uh, his comic iterations, uh, radio dramas, television series, uh, it's times he shows up in uh, popular songs of the day, a certain degree of merchandising, and uh, what have you. Basically everything Superman from the beginning till right before Man of Steel came out, because that happened around publishing time. Um, to uh, capitalize on that. So when everybody was supposed to get re-Superman fever, this book was sort of there to, I guess, um, sort of reestablish a legacy for those that didn't really know Superman that well. The interesting thing... Well, uh, I think, too, that it was the 75th anniversary of Superman, and there are very few characters out there with the longevity of Superman who've had such an up-and-down life. I mean, this is a biography of Superman, not just kind of a, a cultural retelling or examination. It really is like a – it's a it reads like a biography, just going through the facts and detailing all the historical moments in the mythology of Superman. Like the first few chapters are just recounting, here's what happened in Action Comics number 8 when he fought such and such. It's It's a biography. Now, when I've gone through Wikipedia entries to try and figure out, like, who the hell the new villain in the next Avengers movie is going to be, and it's like, well, in this iteration, he does this, but then in this one, he does that. Does Superman not have that? Is it not confusing in that way? No, it does have that. Oh, it definitely is like that. (laughs) Yes. This chronologically, I'm glad you brought up Wikipedia because I was going to. This chronologically goes from beginning to end with seemingly, I mean, he has larger chapter breaks that uh, separate it into eras, you know, different years, you know, the war's on, the war's off, this is the Silver Age, here, you know, is the crazy death of Superman age. But uh, within that, he has subheadings that seem sometimes randomly placed that are nice little, you know, puns on a Man of Steel or what have you, uh, that sort of signals a change into a different sort of media or bringing up a different topic, even if it's just for a paragraph. So it was interesting as somebody who's read a lot of books about the history of Marvel comics um, and uh, watched a few documentaries on that, for better or for worse, uh, the greater superhero comics history. So knowing a little bit about, like, the DC industry and the Marvel industry and these other characters, uh, seeing something that's really focused on Superman like this, I'm not sure if it gives the most detailed history because it's 
not what I would call like a full biography of the character because it sort of picks and chooses what it sees as significant. And sometimes it is undeniably significant, like, you know, what added kryptonite and when red versus blue super. But a lot of it is not. They, they, the fact that three paragraphs are spent on the uh, origin of Terra Man, some throwaway villain from the late 60s, is just like. That's way too detailed. And what's interesting about the book is it reads like a thesis paper. It reads like someone's graduate-level yeah. thesis. Um, well, I don't mean that as a bad thing because I'd probably be interested in reading a lot of thesis papers because people you know, devote a lot of time to research and, and – and then cultural analysis. I think what Glenn does well in this book is when, you know, not he's not just going through and kind of recounting comic books that you could probably read. Um, if you track them down, you could probably read them in, in comicsology form or PDFs that you find on archive.org. You could be reading the comments, the comics that he's kind of putting into words and describing panels for you. But he's also giving a cultural read. I mean... This is a 355-page book, and he is talking about the evolution of this character issue by issue, which is kind of insane. Um, and it gets particularly insane when he starts going into, like, and this is when Bizarro uh, founded Bizarro World. And like, and then there was Bizarro Lois Lane. And here's why, uh, here's why uh, you know, uh, oh God, these villains became different villains, and these characters needed companions and sidekick it's just like so dense unnecessarily so at times but is you have to give the guy credit reason? for having this like breadth of of critical analysis throughout it yeah i mean is there an is interesting it? reason behind all this stuff like i find it fascinating well, when like superman fights hitler but if it's just like well right. they ran out of ideas and like well that's... there is that i mean they are responding Sometimes. to and i think glenn could do more of this dave maybe maybe you have a different opinion here but i i like when we see what's happening behind the scenes at DC or the whole thing with um, Schuster and Siegel like struggling to uh, have ownership over this character. But Glenn even re- tells you in the in the intro to this book, like, read Gerard Jones's Man of Men of Tomorrow from 2004 and you're going to learn about the history of the comics, the making of this is a this is a critical read of every piece of superman pop culture that's ever been created this is not a history lesson Mm -hmm. in why it was created necessarily there are you know it has to be reflected in some way if you're going to critically read these things why does he fight hitler why did he fight muhammad ali um you know why why, fair fight come on he did he did Uh, well they to be fair they were fighting in a ring that was like draped in red sun so that they had equal powers um it happened to lex luther and superman earlier in time so there was established canon for why superman could fight muhammad ali (laughs) but i I mean the problem is that he gets really obsessed with just pouring over all these details and uh, not enough critical analysis perhaps I, i don't know if i've read something that just lasts so long or goes so detailed into just one there aren't many characters that you could do this for Here's what I like is about your analysis is you kind of showed off what I'm going to be most critical about in this book is that it allows somebody to do what you just did, which is rattle off a whole bunch of facts without a lot of context. Like, I'm sure everybody is thrilled to know that Superman fought Muhammad Ali under the red sun. But like, I am. what got I me, that. Yeah, what got me interested in this book is a lot of, um, podcast appearances that he made promoting this book around the time man of steel came out 
that was him saying Man of Steel was wrong because this is what I've come to understand about what the Superman character is. And what I found lacking in this book was really Glenn Weldon stepping forward and making a lot of interpretations. He makes a lot of easy interpretations, like, you know, Clark Kent in a smoking jacket while Lois Lane gets something out of the oven is, you know, Superman becoming, you know, the 50s man about, you know, the suburbs and whatnot. But when he, I think, could be more critical of something like uh, Superman 3's insistence on showing lots of Richard Pryor, he's more interested in giving like a cold fact reading about that where I'm not sure if there was more to be said about how that affects the character and the perception of Superman. Although so I'm, I'm, I'm surprised you don't like that because of how you end up, you end up pouring over details in movies, just like little things, just wanting to know if they're can- canonically correct or factually correct or if they fit into things. I mean, Glenn does track, you know, like if, if Superman, um, I don't know, visits the city of Kandor for people who don't know what that is, that is a chunk of uh, Krypton that flew away, or that, no, that was stolen by Brainiac, the robot, at some point, and, and it was able to bring all sorts of other Kryptonian characters into the in the books later. <laughs> and, oh oh my God, I'm making myself dizzy. But um, you know, it, he he, it, this is a map. This is a guide to Superman in a way, and how things canonically fit into this mythology, and how creators have been able to play with that over time but i i feel like that plays directly into what you love about the mythology not necessarily does it have to speak to the times how it's reflective of history but how it's actually reflective of the mythology that's ever evolving in such a dense um creative tapestry i i think that the book uh goes about everything so linearly that in times where i feel like it's time to pause and really give a retrospective of what the character has become and how it's changed. He only allows himself uh, time to do that if there's a corresponding comic story, you know, like whatever happened to the man of tomorrow or whatnot. So it's uh, sort of like what you were saying. I'm going to agree with you on that point is I was kind of expecting slightly more of a critical voice and uh, less of a straight biography, but I guess that's what the title was. And to wrap up, I think I needed to challenge Patches to some Superman quiz up now that we both finished this book. (laughs) That's true. I feel like I I know so much more. Actually, the biggest revelation from this book that I got was that um, Fellini and Godard were huge Marvel fans and that Fellini actually befriended Stan Lee back in the day. And they went to see musicals together whenever Fellini was in town. Huh. Yeah, which like blows my mind. The Fellini is the first time David has. Uh, has <laughs> in on I just I, I wanted to wake I, him up. I tried that. to be interested, and I now I succeeded. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, I just thought that was interesting. That I learned something about Marvel that I never knew, and you know, Marvel really pushed Superman to be something different uh, when they were catching the minds of young readers with their books. And I, I, I'm more into the cultural stuff and the historical stuff than I am just the straight mythology. I always want to know how it's reflective of the times. And you get a little bit of this in uh, that in this book, but I want more. PBS's three-part superhero documentary, Patches. Oh, yeah? Yeah, it's really good. Uh, this is not show anymore, but we ended. But... <laughs> I don't know where the end was. Uh, the Superman. You, you want more. Uh, Always leave them wanting more. It's just a, it's a little annoying because, like, I uh, was especially interested in the transition from comics to the movie, obviously, with the original Donner Superman. And that's kind of, I mean, that's not something that deserves three pages. It's something that deserves 
30 pages at least in this, in this giant book. I guess there wasn't enough time. There's too much Superman to cover. Are there not other books about that, though? I'm sure there are. Maybe, but I don't know. What is this book? I mean, if not to chronicle all of that. That is a good question. I'm not exactly sure who it's for, but it does give you a lot of facts at your hands. It's very... I don't know. If you were going to teach a class on Superman, I guess this would be a good book. Uh, hello, my name is uh, Kenny. Uh, my Twitter handle is Zivza, Z-I-V-Z-A. Um, and I was, I had a question uh, specifically for um, uh, David, but it can also be addressed to all of you other guys. Um, yeah, I was thinking of making my first short film, and I wanted to be, you know, kind of, I wanted to be kind of like a, a meta satire on the art of, student filmmaking, and actually, since it's my first, I don't know anything about filmmaking. So what do you have advice for someone who's just starting out to make films? And uh, yeah, uh, thanks, and I really enjoy your guys' podcast, and I keep up the great work. This is my favorite voicemail we've ever received. Let's go say that straight up. (laughs) I couldn't agree more. It was very Um, sweet. It was very nice. I shouldn't... I actually shouldn't be the first person to talk because I was the person who took filmmaking classes in college, decided I did not like it, and uh, actively <laughs> pursued a career not making movies. Um, but he, Yes, he, I was offended in our, our, our pre-podcast uh, email chain about being overlooked as a film major. Someone who graduated <laughs> from a filmmaking program, thank you very much. Wow. So, uh, so you think I, uh... you, you think Kenny's going to choke and you, you have nothing but terrible wishes for him, right? No, I'm encouraging David <laughs> to graduate from college. I out IMDb <laughs> all of you guys. I'm pretty sure. So well, he forward. he put it to David first. So I'm gonna I'm gonna tell David to answer first, and then uh, well, I mean, I can only offer advice. So as someone who has, I don't know about failed, but not succeeded in a meaningful way. Um, <laughs> so yeah, which could be valuable. You have made, in you've made a short made a, film. Yeah, you've, you've made successfully a made a short film. I, I have made it. I have made three short films. Uh, all right, getting. Beginning uh, with one between college and grad school and two at grad school. And I really should be making a third this year. But this is not about me. Um, But, no, I mean I haven't really done anything with them other than get into grad school and have the wonderful privilege of giving away every dime I have in this earth for the opportunity to make more. Um, But, uh, first of all, it was a great voicemail. Thank you for calling in. And your short sounds really, really interesting, a lot of fun. Um, I was thinking about this a lot today, and I've come up with more or less nothing, but um, I think I can only relate sort of my biggest problems, and I think uh, it, they all really come down to perfectionism. I think that when you're a cinephile and you start making movies, uh, you sort of naturally rank your work and your thoughts against your favorite movies, which can be a tall task and can be really limiting of your own sort of personal expression as you try to fit these preconceived boxes. Um, and, and so I'm assuming about you, if you listen to this podcast, that you 
tend to watch a lot of movies, and I think one of those dangers is is the perfectionism that comes along with that, and and not letting everything sort of just breathe and be your own, and not being afraid to make mistakes that sort of reflect your own personality rather than towing a sort of preconceived line. But the the one practical bit of advice I would have for you, besides not spending money, because you you, there's, you just don't need to spend money to do this well, particularly this idea, which sounds uh, like something that could be executed on the cheap. You just need good friends. Um, is uh, is to remember that films are made in the editing room. Um, you, you obviously need to collect some good ingredients when you're out there shooting, but uh, your movie can really still be absolutely anything when you start editing it, um, and you shouldn't be locked into your sort of storyboards or shot progression or whatever it is, however you choose to make things. But, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, once you sit down at Final Cut or whatever it is that you're doing, um, you're the story, the, the film is really sort of born anew. It's really where it's made. So uh, don't... Don't limit your imagination when it comes to that, which is the most pivotal part of the production as far as I'm concerned. But, uh, yeah, I mean, that's uh, that's what I would say. Uh, Dave. Know, and, and good luck. <laughs> good. And good luck. Don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Dave, Dave, you've also made films. Yeah. Um, I would say that uh, I'm really going to get behind – David's, you know, you just need friends and would say that what you really need is one person to handle um, the logistics. You so need a you Dave. Can... Yeah. yeah. That's what Dave's saying. Dave, you need someone like Dave to make sure that you don't have to spend all of your energy thinking about the logistics so you're free to think about the movie. Yeah. Or just, I also had a friend of mine uh, growing up named Ty Hart. He was my next door neighbor and we would sort of split uh, logistics and whatnot in our, you know, high eight filmmaking so that one of us could uh, stay focused on the story. And it's something that I think not only is film going to be a collaborative medium. And if you end up being like a real filmmaker someday, you'll realize all you do is sort of make decisions after people have given you uh, two equal sides. Uh, but it'll really sort of allow you to focus more on uh, making this one film your calling card so you could maybe get paid for something in the future and not have to, you know, also learn how to raise money and how to line produce and if you need to rent any equipment or deal with any permits or anything like that or the actors who, you know, wake up with a rash the less you have to deal with that sort of thing and the more you can give it to somebody who could train for a very valuable job in their future, um, I think the better you could find yourself serving your story, which, if you listen to the podcast, is, I think, something we always wish uh, all films did better. Most films did better. Patches. Uh, patches. Oh. Um, you have a film degree? I do. I do. I, I should pimp my films. They're online. You can see it. <laughs> um, I, I, I kind of echo what David's saying uh, in a way. Um, I think a lot of people, especially short filmmakers, uh, these days in the digital age, even more so than I think when I was in college, which is kind of strange, but I guess, you know, the internet wasn't up to snuff and the way we present films wasn't really as accessible as it was now, which is not that long ago. Um, but a lot of people focus on the end product really early. How is this going to get online or how am I going to, where am I going to show it and who's going to pick it up and who's going to watch it? I think this is why a lot of people make fan films. Um, they want to know, you know, I'm going to make a portal fan film because, you know, that's going to get 2 million hits on YouTube. I'm going to get a lot of play because uh, it's something and people it works. care about. Um, it does. Don't make a portal fan film. It does <laughs> work, but I don't, I think it works. It 
it's it's point the point it makes is fleeting you know it doesn't last mm. very long it doesn't really establish you as an important person it establishes you as someone who can execute something and um what's much more helpful is not getting youtube hits but making a film that lasts in people's memories they want to you to make more films um so i would say make something very personal even if it's your first film even if this is just an attempt to see if you can make a movie. Um, and even hearing the, you know, the very vague premise that you threw out there, uh, I, I'm already a little worried like it can get too complicated, you know? Especially, you know, I, I think my early films too got really complicated and I had to draw back and I just had to be like, what is the simplest story I could tell? I always wanted to be ambitious and I saw people in film school be really ambitious. 20, 20 minute film. I'm going to spend $50,000. It's going to be huge. It's going to be crazy. We're going to do all these special effects because I know how to do all this stuff. I'm a post-production master. It's going to be crazy. It's going to look like a Hollywood movie. And the stories suck. I mean, it just comes down to that. It's all about a good, simple story. And you don't have a lot of time in a short film. So you need a good action and you need a character that's that we understand or that we don't understand and want to learn more about immediately and that you can tell us something about. And, you know, I don't think you have to write what you know or direct what you know, but you have to write and direct what you feel. And um, that's really you what gotta I cast to James from. Franco. Oh, and get yeah. James Franco. Yeah. yeah, yeah that's that's good. Good. I mean, my, my last bit of advice uh, is that you should watch some Robert Brisson films so you know how articulate a basic image can be and then immediately follow that with some Godard films so you know how much you can destroy that image and oh, to you know synthesize it into something new uh and then make something your own yeah i don't, I don't think a, a short film necessarily needs a gimmick uh it just needs yeah. a good hook so it needs a and it needs a strong action and it needs a point and uh, a lot of people miss that it sounds really easy but I, I don't think a lot of people get that they set out with an end product in, in mind in a way to really get people but what they don't do is serve themselves first there's okay. one film i've ever seen off the top of my head at least about the making of a student film uh that's not like super eight or something like that it's like kids i'm thinking of a japanese film called who's Camus anyway uh i don't remember loving the film but the it opens with incredible long long take uh, but anyway i think that they really sort of got into the vibe of what was happening i don't know if you want if it's healthy to reference things before you get started anything like that but i'm just going through my memory and thinking of movies about student films. watching That's the one what about watching short films do you have a short film that you'd tell someone to watch uh i would i don't know i short films are hard <laughs> i think what patches was saying is is really the most important thing that like you know, short film is a very awkward form, and I wish that people were better trained and had better venues to sink into, like, a 20-minute film. I mean, obviously, that's the length of a TV episode, but it's just a different mindset. But I think uh, the sooner you can convey what your general idea is, the sooner you can hook someone in and get them to, to stay there for yes. seven or eight minutes. I mean, it sounds obvious, but you don't want to make a mini feature. This is definitely a mistake that I've you made. You don't need opening you credits, everybody. You, yeah. <laughs> you, you don't you don't want to take a feature and put it in a vice and squeeze it down to 20 minutes or 10 minutes you want to make a story that feels like it, it it at least it sounds for this concept like you want to make a story that fits into the short form film my, format. Uh, my, my one of my professors at nyu who also um programs the short section for tribeca once told me that she will never accept a film that opens with a clock so opens with a keep, clock? Yeah, she hates films that open with, like, the time or the clock or something like that. She thinks it's that, filler. 
So she never. So went to see the if clock. you're trying to get into Tribeca, <laughs> well, I, I think it's a good rule. I mean, it's just not. It's out. not character first. It's not story first. It's just like, and here's the the slowest, most boring way uh, to get into a movie. I will character I, first. That's a terrible. Hey, why, uh, why, why does every movie have to be about? Character. It doesn't have to Some be about character. So much more interesting, uh, but it's not. It's not story. It's not necessarily story first all the time. It's not. It's not. Yeah. There's no rules for anything. But I can understand can we, that recommendation. Can we agree that shorts that are like funnier die punchline shorts aren't really shorts? Yes. Well, they don't okay. get you anywhere. Sound, They're just as. This uh, doesn't sound like it's. Uh, it's going to run the risk of that. Okay. Good. You don't want to tell a short. I hate shorts that are just jokes in in film form. Uh, I'd rather you just tell me the joke. You know. <laughs> Uh, I, have you seen Jason Reitman's, uh, Jason Reitman's oh, Jason Goldfish Reitman's Goldfish terrible film? short? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That what, short do you, about, what do you uh, know, Katie? Well, the this girl? is the thing. I, well, I'm a girl who didn't want to make movies, uh, but I want to give the advice to learn the thing that I never did, which is how to stand in a room at five in the morning with a bunch of people standing around needing you to tell them where to go and to not just want to stick the camera wherever it is and get it done and get everyone out of there and uh, Coffee. You know, be, be done with it. Yeah. Coffee. As much coffee as possible. Yeah, you will for regret everyone. the decision. I mean, while I maintain that in the editing room your movie can still become anything, the pain that you try to elude that last 15 minutes on set because you want to go home or so whatever will haunt you for 15 months. Yeah. Uh, so so make sure you get what you want. You want to be really confident, but you also need to be completely open to the opinions and and, and advice of the collaborators you respect, which is a really difficult line to toe. Um, also, the only short films I ever made were on on film, which is a terrible idea. Me too. I love. Oh my God. I love that. Oh, I love so, so much better. It's so much uh, better. You don't have to. You don't get to see anything. You have to have trust. Your, your yeah, and then sweaty in that bag. And then oh, when you shot love an entire mags. day on the wrong uh, shutter speed, and everything is in slow motion. Well, I wasn't well, a dope. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that was that was me. I did that and had to reshoot an entire Monday morning, and it sucked. I, so now I do not make films for a good reason. My, my last comment is I, I want to make a short film recommendation. I think you can see this film online in some capacity, but seek out this film by Mitchell Block, 1972. It's called No Lies. It's in the National Film Registry, and I don't want to say anything more about it. Watch it and get back to me. I really want people to see this movie. It's That short film changed my life. Wow. Professor Patches. <laughs> David O. Russell and Martin Scorsese have new movies out. You know, people have been talking about them a little bit. It's not really such a big deal. Except that it's a huge deal because The Wolf of Wall Street and American Hustle seem to have taken over every critical conversation. Wolf of Wall Street even more so. I think as we mentioned when we uh, reviewed it on the show, it seems like every time I talk to someone about a different movie, it loops back to Wolf of Wall Street. Um, But what's been interesting about Wolf of Wall Street and American Hustle being out at the same time is that they are – I mean, you could argue about how stylistically similar they are, but it also seems inarguable that David O. Russell was at least thinking of Goodfellas while he made it. And there seems to have been this dividing line between uh, particularly critics talking on Twitter, but also some pieces that are written and and people trying to defend one film or the other, this sense that you can only like one or the other. 
And I've been kind of puzzled by this. I mean, I watch critics fight amongst themselves all the time on Twitter and don't pay that much attention most of the time. But the fact that these two movies are being stacked against each other and that they're both pretty good movies and people still feel the need to tear each other apart over liking one or the other kind of baffles me. And when we brought up trying to talk about this, I was surprised to see David, who has been engaged in many of these arguments on Twitter and writing pieces. Um, you seem to kind of agree that you can only like one or the other one of these. And I want to start this conversation by pulling apart what the hell's going on, why everyone keeps fighting over these movies. Uh, is that true? Do you think you can only like American Hustle or Wolf of Wall Street? I do not think that is true. And I uh, Defend I know- yourself. I know several people who at least claim to like both. Uh, (laughs) What I was saying was that it's interesting to me that, you know, there's always this idea that, uh, and which is a healthy one, of course, that, uh, you know, movies are not a zero sum game that you can like both, even if they're similar movies made in sort of different styles, you can like both Wolf of Wall Street and American Hustle. And while I think that in true, in theory, that is true. And in practice, in this particular case, probably true as well. I I do think uh, that it's interesting that, um, I don't know, that, that these movies tackle similar characters, not identical characters, but similar characters with similar ambitions. And um, and they, I think they just have such different approaches that I find – but it's a similar topic matter that I find that it, it is hastened people dividing into camps. It has antagonized the conversation because they so clearly play to different personality types. I had an early theory that – People who really like sketch comedy and SNL would be more drawn to uh, the supposed humor of Jennifer Lawrence talking about a science oven or something like that Ooh, if you watch getting... SNL. This is not no, about I mean, you trashing I, I... American Hustle. No, but it's, it's, it is me about me trashing American Hustle. But it's not about me uh, trashing these people who are you know wonderful people. And I've just noticed this is a theory of mine that I did not mean in, as, a, you know, as a means of denigration at all that uh, people who like sketch comedy tended to like American Hustle – and not like Wolf of Wall Street as much. And I was wondering, you know, whether all this back and forth actually could be telling. Like people just assume automatically that the antagonism is useless. And I think that that is uh, not helpful. I think it's really interesting to sort of look at the nature of the antagonisms and see, okay, we accept the fact that people are at each other's throats on the internet or they're, you know, E-throats and they about will this. be until the end of time. Yes. Right? Could that, rather than simply being like, "Oh, you're awful," we should just, you know, we should just throw away these conversations as regrettable moments, while they may be regrettable, and the antagonism is obviously heightened by the whole award season fracas and everything that goes around that. Uh, could there actually be something illuminating that it says about us, or more, more importantly, I think in this case, about these movies? Um, and that's that's just sort of how I wanted to reorient the conversation. I mean, it makes me happy when movies that are this interesting get people talking. Like, I was talking to uh, our friend Joe Reed, who has been a pretty vocal critic of Wolf of Wall Street both before and after he saw it. And he reminded me that, yes, we were talking about Man of Steel all the time, and that doesn't make Man of Steel a good movie. But I do think there's something especially interesting, and the reason it happens at the end of a year usually is that there are movies that are more interesting than most of the other ones coming out and that they get people worked up and people everywhere. It's not just critics who are arguing about it. There's people seeing Wolf of Wall Street and American Hustle in large numbers. And that is healthy to me. I like having that debate. It's the team blank versus team blank part of it that kind of wears me out because I don't get why I'm not allowed, why I have to pick sides. You are, you are, you know, you are allowed to like both uh, for sure. I just think that it's, 
You know, as long as we don't necessarily assume that this is an identical factionalism that would come up every award season. And while we, we were talking before the show that uh, the reason that there may not have been this sort of vitriol between the two camps or as readily identifiable camps um, when There Will Be Blood and uh, No Country for Old Men came out is because we didn't have Twitter and the discourse wasn't so public. But you know, rather than assuming that this debate between Wolf of Wall Street and American Hustle is the same as it would be between any two movies in Oscar Like between season, Zero Dark Thirty and Argo. Right. Uh, you know, and while that certainly it could be true and there are probably elements of truth to that, I think it'd be interesting to look at what's different. Like what what is it about these films? How similar are they, first of all? Um, let's not just sort of assume that they're identical simply because they're about people who conned people out of money or tried. Um, and and what does it say about the people who – what does it say about these movies? Like how many people do you know that are actually – uh, huge supporters of both. Not like, oh, I was okay on one and loved the other, but really loved both or, you know, conversely hated both. Um, and I just, you know, we, I was having difficulty. I could think of maybe two people I know who are just huge supporters of both films. And I'm wondering if they actually are, to a certain extent, mutually exclusive. Um, but I, do, I mean, you, I just, do you think it's automatically more interesting to see these movies in conjunction with each other just because they came out at the same time? Or do you think... Do you think that you would consider these two movies next to each other if they hadn't come out within weeks of each other? I do think I would. I think uh, obviously that comparison is made for me by you know their, their release dates. But I think that if they were released within five years of each other, let's say, they cover similar enough ground uh, and really sort of elicit responses about how American audiences feel about uh, crooks, uh, financial crooks who live a certain lifestyle or aspire to. Uh, I think that the comparisons would sort of be natural. I think what's unfortunate is that um, – and I'm going to try to not make this too weighted against American Hustle. But I think that it's unfortunate that a lot of the claims that have been – or a lot of the accusations that have been levied against The Wolf of Wall Street, um, which have really drowned out more interesting conversations about the movie. It's a huge movie that has a lot in its mind. Not all of it comes down to how the director feels about his characters, etc. Um, is that these same claims could be – or the same accusations could be made against the characters in American Hustle and have not been because they've been so busy being directed at – the Wolf of Wall I, I do think and that's so I, strange that American Hustle basically rewards the characters who've been absolutely horrid the entire time. Like they're all acting makes, out. Yeah. They're, they're uh, miserable people being miserable to other people, and yet at the end they walk into the horizon happy. Yeah, and it makes no it makes no attempt to hide sort of – and I always think this is an asinine question, but certainly uh, it, the movie doesn't really make much of an attempt to hide what the director feels about his characters. I mean you sort of know every step of the way who you're supposed to be rooting for and why. And uh, in American Hustle and not in Wolf of In American Hustle. Uh, American Hustle is not quite as morally complex or interested as The Wolf of Wall Street, and I, I'm not saying that as a – Dig. I, that's obviously not objective, but uh, I do feel it's, no, I think it's that's, true, I think and I don't mean fair. it as a as a dig. But can I mean, you? I mean, are you free to enjoy the kind of fluffiness of American Hustle? It seems like you feel that you need to be antagonistic towards the people who favor American Hustle over Wolf of Wall Street because they're missing the more valuable film, in your opinion, um, that the entertainment value can't no, be don't. enjoyed in that way. I don't feel like I have to be antagonistic towards them. I feel like but it's isn't unfortunate that the frame, you're, that you're the, phrasing it that way. You're saying that we need the antagonism between these two discussions. It needs to be as heated and it has to be as violent verbally at oh, least. Oh, no. I, I, I'm not trying to say that at all. I don't think that this conversation needs to be this way. I'm just saying that we, if we accept that it is this way, 
we can rather than just scoff and be like, oh, it's unfortunate, we can actually try to mine the tone of the conversation for interesting, illuminating ideas. Um, we can look at them and say, like, why is it this way rather than just sort of hating In a way that we should pit films against each other. I mean, we, we need to – it needs to be the grudge match of <laughs> – America. Well, you know, it's like I just came. I just came from a movie, uh, an essay film called Los Angeles Plays Itself, which is a, a three-hour film from 2001 by Tom Anderson, where he looks at how Los Angeles has been depicted in the movies by showing clips of hundreds of different movies and really using them as contrast. You learn something. Be, you learn a little bit about um, – it's sort of cinema's history. I mean you see that the documentary films can comment on the fiction films and now the fiction films can comment on documentary reality uh, by stacking them up against one another and you get sort of a more uh, lucid portrait of uh, – or a kaleidoscopic one at least of Los Angeles as a whole. And I think that you know it's, it's a pretty perfect example of using films uh, against one – against each other to – get a better and more comprehensive sense as to what's happening and sort of... Sure. The, the but I think what people rarely people. do in discussions, especially casual discussions after movies or what really has people butting heads, is that we're no longer using these films in an essay-like quality. We're not really intertwining them as a discussion, building upon one, using the other um, to complicate arguments. It becomes like a line in the sand you over here, you over there, and we're going to war. One is better. Like, you are a lesser well, film that's viewer because of... I know Katie doesn't want to talk about awards, but that's well, the awards mentality. Get... Yeah, I mean, is. like, if there's no... If there were no award season, then, you know, these conversations still happen, but they wouldn't be nearly But David, as all is lost is the, the best film of the year. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, so I think that that's sort of natural. And, you know, I, you know, I, I think... Uh, I don't know. I, I do think that the movie's... And our reactions to them can be very valid comments on one another. I think that um, there is a certain – you know, I think it's interesting that there, there's definitely a certain percentage of the population. And I'm not throwing all people who didn't like Wolf of Wall Street into this camp by any means. But there's definitely a certain percentage who does not want to uh, confront the – the fact that America rewards its criminals in certain capacities, that this is our problem and not – the movie's problem that we have to live with the fact that Jordan Belfort is uh, still doing pretty well for himself and, and was more or less not punished. He was still rich when he went to prison, et cetera. Um, and that it's not the movie's judgment. It's, it's simply how it worked out. They don't want to confront that. And they're offered something like American hustle as escapism, which is sort of a, a more clearly defined morality play. Um, it's a lot of fun. It lets you have fun with these people. It lets you laugh at them, but also with them as, uh, you know, Oh, this is not my friend, the Sheik. he's from Queens, you know, like that sort of stuff. Um, you know, it's it's uh, it's interesting to see what people want out of their movies, um, and I think that you know, I think the fact that, ha that the reaction has been so heated suggests that people, and this is obviously a sweeping and reductive generalization, but that people may want one or the other. That it is difficult for someone to say, okay, I want to have this more lucid portrait of what um, of how we're punishing these particular kind of criminals, why we're not punishing them more severely. Do we want to emulate them, et cetera? I want to have that conversation. I want to look at that head on versus like – and if I do want that, can I also not you know, appreciate something? I mean I, I don't think it's true. I mean I think of like Catch Me If You Can, which I think is like American Hustle but amazing, um, <laughs> is, is – uh, you know, shows that – it's certainly. I'm certainly not saying that you can't have fun when you're looking at this sort of story. It's the last thing I'm saying. I think Wolf of Wall Street is actually a lot of fun, and that's. Well, part I of think its text, because but... they're so close to each other, it's an unavoidable. 
discussion. I mean, if American Hustle had come out last year and it didn't have something that felt so competitive with it, kind of tackling similar themes and and veering in different directions, uh, then you wouldn't have this problem at all. Mm. I mean, does American Hustle live – will it thrive when distance separates it from Wolf of Wall Street and we can finally step back and say it it doesn't have to live in the shadow of Scorsese? I I think the movie has nowhere to go but down. Well, I'm I'm with you. I'm just trying to play devil's advocate here. (laughs) Yeah. I mean I think it's it's a worthwhile question to ask. In this particular case, I think time is not going to be kind to this movie, although TNT probably will. Um, And and that's – really going to be the end of it um and i think time will be much kinder to wolf of wall street as historically it is to movies that rankle the public like this uh but dave what were you going to say i was going to say this sounds really interesting to me just as like if you take out the fact that they were released in such a close period of time it sort of sounds like the deep impact armageddon ants a bug's life argument (laughs) where uh, one's just sort of executed in a much cleaner way and you could see what the other one was going for but it's just not executed we all like deep impact way. more than armageddon right no i mean <laughs> see, the weird thing the weird thing is when you talk to people about that it becomes much more about favorites and less about bests which i think is going to be what time's going to show about this argument not so much that one side was right and one side wasn't right but, but the prestige factor side... ends up making it different like we won't have that we didn't have that argument about deep impact at armageddon because they're such silly movies both of them and this isn't like uh, scorsese versus his i mean not, his, not the guy who these... hopes he's his successor I mean, yeah, just not because all of these when it's time, when the release is, almost. I mean, if Deep Impact and Armageddon both came at, on Christmas, we might have, at one point, had that reaction, but we didn't because oh, we scheduled it better. But it's, it's just similarly themed films that are basically drawing on a similar DNA, but in a really different way. I mean, I think that the whole, like, which one's better is will just devolve into eventually people will be able to recognize their favorite if time happens to shine more better upon the other one. I do think it's fairer to American Hustle to give it that time because it's doing, it's doing similar things to Wolf of Wall Street, but it's doing them in a really different way. And that's kind of what, like with Zero Dark Thirty and Argo last year, it was like, well, Zero Dark Thirty is clearly a better movie. And, but that's because it's a different movie. Like they're made in such different ways that the unfairness of that comparison, like it was that comparison really, really like, like where people, people were comparing the two movies, obviously, because they're both nominated for, Oscars, but and they came out in were, relatively similar times. Yeah, but but thematically, I mean, looking at it's not a deep impact Armageddon situation. Like uh, Argo and Zero Dark Thirty were very different. Yeah, movies. they're yeah they're incredibly different movies, but they're like involving Americans, you know, American adventures in the Middle East. They both the take place over there. Yeah, uh, somewhere where there are uh, people in demand and people who wear veils. Oh, my God. Super, super weird. Um, but these things happen. I mean, they, and they happen every year. I mean, the No Country for Old Men and There Will Be Blood. Like, they are very interesting takes on the American West, but they are incredibly different movies. And I find that, you know, seven years later, it's so much more interesting to think of them completely different from one another. Well, that's it's hard for me to make criticisms about American Hustle because I feel like I'm entrapped in this this boxing match between these two movies, this fight. Um, I, I wish that I could just say that American Hustle fails at being a madcap comedy. That it kind of just fails on its own level as opposed to it fails in comparison to. Um, I mean, I like having Wolf of Wall Street live side by side with it for, for discussion purposes and, and thematic 
discussion. But in the end, I, I really see American Hustle as kind of a, a miss on its own merits. Well, if we're taking sides, <laughs> we're not. Which, no, which we are. I think the other. I think the other way it could land is we just contextualize American Hustle into the lesser Twilight period of David O. Russell and just separate it from Wolf of Wall Street entirely. I, th- I think it falls into his Twilight period. But do you guys think that? Hats and, uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> but but do you guys think that uh, that these movies are? about these particular movies do you think that it is i I really don't want to say possible because it's obviously possible but do you think that there's something interesting about the uh reluctance with which people seem to love both or the struggle um i don't know there's i I feel like you can get off on the cinema of both i mean since american hustle didn't work for me i can't really speak to this but i can imagine that um, the light fluffiness and and you know it's it's very content with itself and it's bouncy and it's fun and you can enjoy that you can have you can have fun with American Hustle and be like moved by Wolf of Wall Street kicked in the ass by Wolf of Wall Street it seems plausible to me um, well, we, how about we ask listeners if you have seen both yes. and like both please talk yeah. to us we are not <laughs> trying to call you or I, I'm not I, I can't speak for David but I'm not trying to call you idiots. Um, well, I sir, I'm certainly not trying to call you. <laughs> well, an idiot. I certainly I, I, trying to I, call you an idiot. I, I you know, my, what I was trying to say this whole time was not that. Um, while I obviously strongly believe that one film is better than the other, I am not saying that. I, I'm just trying to th- say that I think it's interesting that the conversation has been so heated, and I think that we can learn things from it. But they're not that some of us are smarter than the others. I think that it's just interesting to not throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak, and not just say, okay, because the tone is crappy, we should just not think about any of this any deeper. I think, I'm also uh, very the, the, curious about people who love all, both movies or prefer one over the other or would even think to make that comparison, like have a preference that feels so strong. I mean, as you mentioned earlier in this segment – it's such a uh, a window into their personality and who they are, and that's what I love about movies. I mean, I'm, I'm always ready to have these conversations with people in a non-argumentative way because I'm just fascinated by who they are. And I, I mean, isn't that the point? I have a very sexual way of wrapping oh, myself. Perfect. Oh, that's that's what I was waiting mm. for. So we should take the two individual breasts of this Venn diagram and squish it together to make a nice vagina in wow. the center that we oh, can all live happily. Dear wow. God. Wow. Feminist yeah, theory. See? Your Something, math teacher right? taught you about Venn diagrams in a disturbing way. <laughs> yeah, but you know what I Colorado, remember? Colorado, you guys. Fuck Colorado. Venn you liked Wolf of Wall Street better, didn't you? I can tell based on yeah, this. Yeah, well, I know how to end a segment. Although American Hustle is the one definitely more about boobs. Wait, Amy Adams' boobs are all over that thing. Haircut, simply terrible necktie. The worst bearing, just unbearable. What to tackle first? Still, you've got possibilities, though you're horribly square. I see possibilities underneath. There's something there. 
That does it for today's Fighting in the War Room. We'll be back for a review of August Osage County, which is a movie about fighting, but at the dinner table. And it's still very thematically on point. Um, in the meantime, tell the people who you are. I am Matt Patches. I am a writer on the internet. Write about pop culture, movies, and that sort of thing. Uh, and I put it all on mattpatches.com. And we also have a website for Fighting in the War Room. Can you guess the URL? No. Uh, it's fighting in the it's fighting in the warroom.com, believe it or not. We got it. We got the URL. Um, so go there and you can I think you can leave comments and Dave might still be doing surveys. Dave, are you? Yeah, every episode has a survey awesome. and comments. And, we love yeah. feedback and we love interaction and that is a great way to do it. I know I check it. And you can tweet and Facebook from there. It's awesome. Share links. Fighting in the warroom.com. You know what else is a great way of doing that? It's going to our Facebook page. Oh, wait, I should talk about who I am. I'm more important than than the show. Yeah, who uh, are you? <laughs> uh, I'm David Ehrlich. I'm the senior editor of Film.com. You can find me on the internet at Twitter. Uh, fuck. At Twitter. <laughs> I've had such a, pit, a patter for this. You are now for like 100 episodes. And now that I just switched around the order, it's all chaos. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at David Ehrlich and at film.com and you can find everything on film.com itself you can find all of us on Facebook at Fighting in the War Room where yeah, we can interact with you directly it's a great place to leave us feedback help grow our Facebook page like us we'll love you back hey I'm Dave Gonzalez I spell that first part D-A-7-E that's also my Twitter handle I write about superhero movie news at latino-review.com and if you haven't guessed from my previous podcasters' sign-offs. We like feedback for some reason. For some um, reason. Uh, yeah, you could go make like Keith and ask us a really interesting question on the voicemail. His name was calling. not Keith. His name's not it's Keith? Kenny, it's Kenny, Kenny. It is Kenny. Kenny <laughs> at Twitter, Z-I- You too Z-I. could have your name forgotten <laughs> on Fighting in the War Room. Yes, all those things, and get some shaky advice from us at 914-410-6450. Is it possible to like both Daves on Finding in the War Room, or do we this have is, to uh, That's a dangerous choose. question. That's the survey question. Oh. Which one of you is American Hustle, and which one of you is Wolf of Wall Street? <laughs> Don't make me choose. <laughs> I'm Katie Rich. You can find me at Vanity Fairs Hollywood, where you can also find recently work by previous uh, Fighting in the War Room Operation Kino guests like Jordan Hoffman and Joanna Robinson. And soon there might be work from other people whose voices you'll recognize from the show. Lots of exciting stuff happening there. You can also find me on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H. And you can find the show on Twitter at F-I-T-W-R, uh, where you can answer this week's lightning round question, which is... In honor of Lone Survivor, what was the wildest stunt from a 2013 movie? Thank you for listening, and we'll be back talking to you on Friday. And if he stays, I'll wait for him in the morning. I'm a thousand pieces of light. If he stays, then I'll wait for him in the morning. I'm a thousand pieces of light. If he stays, I'll wait for him in the morning. Pieces of light. If he stays, then I'll wait for him in the morning. I'm a thousand pieces of light.